Welcome to Apparently Speaking, the podcast from Northeast Ohio Parent Magazine, with your host, Miriam Connor. Hi, this is Miriam. Welcome to the latest episode of Apparently Speaking, where I'll be talking with author Sam Quinones about his book, Dreamland and the Opiate Epidemic. This episode is sponsored by Montrose Mazda Kent. They go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at mazdakent.com. And also by Old Trail School. In addition to a challenging academic experience, students aged 2 to grade 8 learn to embody the school's core values of respect, responsibility, goodness, and service as they mature into thoughtful, independent leaders. I'd like to welcome Sam Quinones to the show. Sam is a journalist, author, and storyteller. The adult edition of his book, Dreamland, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for general nonfiction and was included in numerous best book of the year lists. Um, I mentioned your adult edition of, first of all, welcome. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, I'm so glad to have you here. I mentioned your adult edition of Dreamland and you've also written a young adult adaptation and that's what I just read. And um, I was telling you before we started, I really couldn't put it down, and then I'm not just saying that. <laughs> um, it, it was really, really interesting. It was interesting. It really kept my attention, but it was also, man, so sad also, and we're going to get into that and just um, some right. specifics about that. So what is Dreamland, if, if someone has not heard of it? What is that? Uh, the, the reference in the book is mm-hmm. to a swimming pool in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio, southern Ohio, on the, on the Ohio River. And it's a pool that no longer exists. It was a community swimming pool. It was where, for this one town, Portsmouth was a, was a very uh, industrial town, a lot of factories, a lot of working class folks doing fairly well, even though no one was rich. And one place they all congregated, particularly in the, the summer and for the fall months, was this enormous swimming pool about the size of a football field uh, called, called Dreamland. Um, the reason I focused on it was because I believe this story about the opiate epidemic, which is in the headlines all the time now, has actually deeper roots than simply drug marketing, drug trafficking, and so on. has a lot to do with the destruction of community, the bonds that hold us together uh, in, in small towns, in, in counties, and so on. And um, the story of Dreamland is, 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 is part of that. It's a story of a, a town that was doing very well, a lot of factories, a lot of people working, and then those jobs began to go. Um, Main Street began to empty out. A lot of people began to leave. About half the population left. And then about 10 years into this process, um, Dreamland Pool was also knocked down. And uh, with that, the town lost something kind of almost part of its soul. It was a place where people met each other, saw each other, grew up together. Uh, It's where romances began. It's where children started. And by the time they're in uh, high school, they were jumping off the diving board. They had their own kids and their kids started again. It was such an integral part of the community. And to lose that seemed almost like a death knell for the town. And it also what it did was um, open, make the town very vulnerable to uh, this, this scourge of opioids that, that came, that began to come in two or three years after the pool was, was, was destroyed. And this place was put, a big, was put up a big strip mall uh, well, you know, O'Reilly's Auto Parts and the Chinese restaurant, and that was about it. Um, and then with that, the town kind of lost something essential. It lost uh, a community base. It lost a place where people saw each other. Now about the only place to see your, uh, your neighbor was at Walmart. And um, so the idea was, to, though, to, to, to take this story of this one swimming pool as almost a, a stand-in or a metaphor for the rest, what we've done to community 
across this country and what left us vulnerable to this scourge of opiate um, painkiller pill, uh, uh, prescription painkillers, and then, of course, leading to heroin and fentanyl and all, and all the rest. Still, this, this was a, this was a, a moment that, in, in, that happened over and over all across the country in different, very different ways, but it seemed to me co- a common denominator in all this, this destruction of community, and hence the, the name of the, of, of the book. Yeah, I, I love that that's um, how you title the book, and you included a picture of Dreamland, the pool, in the book. And I just, I mean, I stared at it for quite a while, and I thought, you know, we, we have a community pool where I live, and, and it, it is that, I mean, a way smaller scale than this Dreamland was, but it's a social, you know, it's just such a social gathering right. place. And right, we see, you know, some of the people, even though they live in my town, I may not see them really, you know, they're summer friends. We kind of joke that way. And like, oh my gosh, look how big your kids got over this school year and things like that. And you kind of, you go there right. and there's always going to be someone that you know, and it's just, there's something special about it. So to have it for just the town even, and it was enormous. I, I was I was thinking right. in the way you described it and you were saying, you know, all the things that happened there and what a special place just to bring that community together um, and all the wonderful things that happened there. And you're thinking it's just a pool, but it was much more than that. And when it was gone, like you said, that was kind yeah. of the beginning of the end. That was a crushing, that was a crushing yeah. blow. Um, I, I wrote to a Facebook page uh, uh, about Portsmouth. Uh, I think it's called, you know, you're from Portsmouth if dot, dot, <laughs> dot. Right. And so I wrote to them as I was doing the book and I said, you know, I've heard a lot about this pool. And I don't know much about it. And can you, anybody share any memories or idea or recollections you have about the pool? For three days, for three days, people did not stop writing in with long posts about, oh, kissing their first girl <laughs> or smelling the copper tone uh, tanning lotion, the, the radio, on, on and on and on. It was like this magical place. And that's when it really captured me, when I could see how much it meant to all those people. Many of those folks no longer live in Portsmouth. They had to leave because the jobs left. And so then now they live all across the country. But what it meant to them years later to remember that it was a stunning uh, moment in my reporting, just just reaching out to those folks and having them respond in that way. Wow. So tell us, so we know the pool and how you got the, the title. And we know your book is obviously, you mentioned Portsmouth. So what made you write it? And also specifically, what made you bring this, um, bring Dreamland to a team audience, to a teen audience and do the young adult version? Well, uh, uh, I mean, what got me into this story was I began, I, I lived in Mexico for many years. Uh, I was a crime reporter for many years. And I came back from Mexico after 10 years of working down there, got a job at the LA Times and began working on stories about drug trafficking connected to the Mexican drug war. And it was in that capacity I began to write about uh, heroin traffickers, which seemed to be do- who seemed to be doing much bigger business these days. And I couldn't understand why. I didn't understand any of this at the time. Um, as it turns out, as I began to get into that, I began to realize that their market really depended on the mass promotion and very aggressive promotion of narcotic painkiller prescription pain pills uh, all across the country. It's really what distinguishes this drug scourge from any other, that, that it did not start with a drug mafia. It started with pharma companies, uh, the doctors, medical institutions, all buying into the idea that we needed very aggressively now to treat pain. And the way to do that was through um, opioid uh, painkillers. But um, so as, as I got into this, I began to realize 
um, that this was a national story. It was much to my surprise at first. I was like realizing all of a sudden this is going on everywhere, except for nobody's telling the story. It's a very quiet thing because a lot of the families that are affected are um, uh, ashamed and embarrassed that their kid or their spouse or their grandfather is, uh, is addicted. And so nobody really wanted to talk about it. And so it was very hidden. And I realized uh, midway through this, I'm going to think, Jesus, this is a national story. And yet nobody's talking about it except for in certain areas uh, because it's just maybe it hasn't affected enough people yet, or maybe it's just the stigma is just too, too much. Um, so we put out the book in uh, 2015. And ever since then, I believe the awareness of the story um, and, and the problem has done much, nothing but grown. And I know that I've been, you know, going invited to speak in many, many areas all across the country. And I think it's pretty much the awareness is that pretty much every part of the country has this problem to some degree or another. Along the way, though, I began to get comments and Facebook uh, posts and emails and so on from teachers, um, sometimes from PTA groups and parents um, saying, uh, we're using this in our school, but um, is there anything a little bit less advanced, you know? And I began to think uh, uh, that this would be um, a very good book to make accessible to younger uh, audiences. I think the book, the original book, is probably good for 12th graders and above. Um, I'm thinking that this group, this this book now is kind of more for 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, right in there, maybe some 12th graders as well. Um, because I began to get these these things, like we got lots of kids who maybe don't understand fully uh, what's going on. They don't know the story as well as they should. They're going up, they're growing up in, a, in an environment when either the pills or other forms of opiates, heroin or fentanyl or what have you, are very, very prevalent, or maybe they see this around their town. They know this is a, this is a, a firsthand lived experience sometimes. And so as time went on, a couple of years passed, but again, began to get these comments, began to realize maybe this is a book. That, and so I talked it over with the publisher, and they had done other young adult versions of original uh, nonfiction books. And they were very much behind this idea, and they began to work on it. And so, it, but it was really because we felt that there was this need out there among younger folks uh, who might not find the original uh, Dreamland as accessible as they need to be uh, to to reach out to them. You know, church groups, uh, Boy Scouts, uh, PTAs, high schools, junior highs, some of them. All of these are kind of where we see this book kind of going and telling the story that is so relevant, so much in the headlines, but maybe not fully understood by by the kids who are coming up. Well, I'm really glad that you did it. And I agree um, with what you said that the kid, kids do need to read this because and even parent, I think parents need to read either version um, because, you know, as I'm reading, as I was reading it, you know that you hear about this in every town, you know, big or small, Yeah. but you still kind of have that thought of it's not really happening here or it's just a little bit or it's just certain. Yeah. And so that really would not, it, you know, you read and you're like, that really wouldn't happen big time like that. Or it's just a few kids at the school or things like that. And you really don't want to, maybe you just believe that or you don't want to admit it or, you know, whatever it may be. But right. to read that book, it's like, whoa. And it just seemed to, it just happened so quickly, you know, it just spiraled. And, and I know things yeah. were a little different than with the, you know, you tell the story of this certain doctors who obviously were out of control and there, no one was checking on them, but just, it just happened. And I think, you know, um, what I would like to ask you too is tell us about 
all these kids and families that you interviewed and, you know, these, these horrible stories mm-hmm. and, and some turned out, you know, um, turned out great in the end and many, many did not. But I want parents to understand, you know, the types and putting that in quotation marks of right. kids that you saw that, that really were affected by this or are affected by this. Well, I, I think that's another thing that distinguishes this drug scourge from others. And that is that it has affected a wide variety of classes. In the, in the past, you know, particularly when it comes to heroin, we have an image of a heroin addict being, uh, you know, urban denizen, maybe a jazz musician, maybe a guy living under the overpass, no teeth, this kind of thing. And that, that image helped spread this epidemic because so many people didn't think that because they didn't have a family like that, they didn't think, oh, this is ever going to affect me. And particularly after someone in their family, a, a loved one, a, a parent or a child got addicted, it made them less less um, uh, willing to come forward, uh, very afraid and ashamed of coming forward. There was this idea of what a drug addict looked like, uh, even though you know drug addiction has been with humankind since the very beginning, since our very origins. Our brains are wired that way. It's a very normal, if I could use that word, thing. And, and yet people are very um, uh, ashamed of it and mortified. And, and, and all the obituaries, when kids particularly would die, the obituaries were strange fabrications. You know, so-and-so died of a, a suddenly at home at 25. Well, you kind of have to read between the lines and figure out what, what happened there. And so I, I think that, that the idea was that this was, a, what, this was an image of what a heroin addict was. And the truth is, it affected middle America uh, massively, massively. You're talking about football players. You're talking about college, uh, high school athletes. You're talking about the pastor's kid and the police chief's kid. And, and it, it affected not just rural America, not just Appalachian America. It, it went very deeply into the, into the best off suburbs uh, that we have, you know, in Charlotte or Orange County, California, or places like that. Just, you know, places, people who lack for nothing, and yet their kids are getting addicted or their loved ones are getting addicted to drugs um, used to numb pain. You, you kind of wonder, like, what, what pain do you all feel? Uh, why is this happening? You know, but it's, it's, it, 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 it turned the idea on its head of what an actual drug addict was. And up to that point, the, 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 the drug addict had been kind of an outcast, social outcast, maybe even before the addiction began. And now it became clear that it was all the folks who had done best, the folks who were part of the mainstream, their, their loved ones, their children, their spouses, their uncles and what have you, were, were, were getting addicted. And that's just another way in which this epidemic is, is a very different from those that have come before. Right. We're going to take a quick break here. We're from our sponsor. We can come back and I see our time is just going much too fast. I have a lot of things to ask you about. So we'll be right back. Old Trail School is a co-educational independent day school serving children age 2 to grade 8. Located in the heart of Cuyahoga Valley National Park, its 62-acre campus provides the perfect setting for purposeful, intentional curriculum and a meaningful student experience that gets children outside and brings the park in, all while focusing on the school's core values of respect, responsibility, goodness, and service. For 100 years, Old Trail School has inspired the best and brightest young people in the region and is committed to fostering a distinctive culture where each child feels known and cared for. Call 330-666-1118 to schedule a personalized tour or learn more at oldtrail.org. 
And we are back talking with author Sam Quinones about Dreamland. And, you know, you were just telling us we were talking about the types, you know, quote unquote, types of kids that you saw that this affected. And, you know, as you were describing them, it made me just think this this issue, this drug addiction, this opioid epidemic, it doesn't discriminate, you know, against, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what kind of family you are from. No. It doesn't matter how smart you are, what you have going for you on and on and on all your talents, because you saw firsthand and you talked to all these families firsthand of kids like that, that you would think, like you said, what, why are they trying yeah. to escape? What's the problem? Why? But that fell into this and were affected and, and a lot of times lost their lives um, because of this, because of this issue. So it's not just, oh, it happens somewhere else or it happens or, or these kids are doing it just kind of once in a while recreationally. That's a really slippery slope. <laughs> um, and I'm sure some of those kids that you talked to. And that's kind to, of why we put yeah. out the... That's why we put out the YA version too. We wanted uh, one thing we believed was was lacking or missing was something that parents could give their kids. Okay, understand what's going on. This is going to help you understand what's happening around you because frequently what happens is um, uh, some people get addicted by pills that they were prescribed by a doctor. Um, they just use them for too too long a period of time, a car accident, a sports injury, whatever. But a lot of kids go to parties where these pills have been prescribed so massively that the pills kind of take the place of beer and pot at a lot of high school parties. And um, they take these pills because they, it's got a pharmaceutical marking on it. It's prescribed by a doctor. What, how bad could it actually be? And that is the beginning of a very, very quick slippery slope into, into addiction. And so the idea was, too, that, that there might be a market for this among parents who are listening, hoping to, to thinking of, of trying to educate their kids on the dangers that are that seem innocuous, but that are really fairly fairly uh, damaging if you if you if you don't pay attention. And that was real. That was kind of one of the other motivations for writing the young adult version is to give parents something they can give their kids. This is what you need to read. This is what you need to understand. So the next time you're at a party, you know you know how to fend for yourself. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I told you before we started recording, I'm going to have my daughter read it, and I think that it's a great. A book for kids to read high school, junior, even younger, because it's starting as we know, younger and younger. And like you said, it just starts sure. out a lot of times. Oh, my mom has this prescription in her, in the medicine cabinet, you know, from when she got hurt right. or something like that. We're just going to experiment a little bit. But also in the book, you talked about how it's changed. The drug had changed even, right? Mm-hmm. What happened was these drugs are molecularly very similar to heroin. They all come from the opium poppy, which is the oldest drug, pretty much about the oldest drug we know as a, a plant-based drug that we know as, as a species. The human, humankind has been using it for, for, for millennia. Um, so these pills are connected in that way. And once you get addicted to these pills, um, as many people did, a lot of people were helped by these pills. I mean, they do, they do a wonderful job of, of controlling pain. Uh, among some patients, a lot of folks were 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 grew addicted fairly quickly. Um, at a certain point, a few things might happen. Number one, you might lose your insurance. Number two, the doctor may stop wanting to prescribe them to you, and you're already kind of strung out on them. Um, and, and so, people would very commonly switch to heroin once they could no longer find the pills, or the pills were no longer. Uh, they were denied access in one way or another. They would um, switch to heroin. And um, heroin, heroin, when I lived in Mexico, 
I could tell you that most heroin, I mean, most drug traffickers in Mexico didn't want to mess with heroin at all. Uh, it was a low-class drug viewed even more low-class than it is here in the United States, I have to say. Also, um, the market here in the United States was very stagnant. It was in every market you'd go, it would be like the same 50 to 100 heroin addicts, and that was it. They were living in motels. There was not a lot of money in it. What happened with the expansion of pain pills is that it, it, it exploded the, the market up here for, opiate, uh, uh, for opiates, and particularly exploded the number of opiate addicts, people who needed to buy these drugs every single day and, and use them every single uh, day. And that helped you know, massively expand the potential market for heroin traffickers from Mexico. And so as, soon, as that began to take place, a few traffickers began to figure that out. I write in the story about one town, uh, which was really the, 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 who were really the pioneers in, in figuring this out, that there was a big market of heroin if you just follow the pills. And they did this about 20 years ago, really, is when they began to figure this out. Uh, the town of Jalisco in the small state of Nayarit, who developed a retail model of selling uh, black tar heroin, which is a kind of a sticky, gooey, uh, tootsie roll looking like substance. It is every bit heroin is the white powder we're used to. But uh, so, so they began to market it like this. But the important, their importance is really not that they're the only traffickers from, of heroin in Mexico. It's that they figured this out back in like 1998, 99. Just follow the pills. You're going to have a huge market for heroin one day and, and pretty soon. And so they did. And, and that, that, that process, though, of switching from pills to heroin has simply accelerated since then. And, and so many, many places all across the country, the people who are using heroin today started with pills, pain, painkillers that had been prescribed, either to them or to somebody else. Um, that's how they got, that was the gateway drug into it. So there's, there's this, this, this whole process that happens that awakens the Mexican drug trafficking culture to the profit now in heroin that they once thought was non-existent virtually or very, very small. Now they can see this enormous new wave of addicts in coast to coast all over the country, you know, in, in every part of the place. And so this is, this is the secondary kind of effect of this epidemic. First, to get people hooked on these pills. And then second, to awaken this very, very, I would say, diabolical way of viewing uh, customers to sell them extraordinarily potent uh, heroin, very cheap. Uh, as, a, as a, a brand new market that traffickers out of Mexico were, were had, had assumed would, would, did not exist at all, and in fact didn't really exist before the pill thing. It was so weird because um, when I was reading your book, I think it, if I have the the date correctly, it was correct. It was 2003. Um, seemed to be really happening in Columbus, this Portsmouth area, but not other places at that point because you made um, told the right. story about how a doctor was, you know, the girl, I think it was a girl addicted to heroin and calling other places right. to try to get advice. And they were like, what? We haven't had that here. And then I'm like, wow, that was just in 2003 where it wasn't really so yeah. prevalent, but it was in that area. And you talk about why it was in that area. But then since then, obviously it seems it's just exploded and it's, it's everywhere, unfortunately. It's everywhere. And it's what's amazing to me, I think as a crime reporter for many years, I had associated heroin you know, with New York City, with uh, L.A., with um, San Antonio, maybe, uh, Oakland, uh, places that were um, big cities and, and certainly certain states like Illinois, New York, uh, um, Arizona, uh, California. And what struck me is now the big heroin states, certainly the big states with lots of uh, opiate overdoses 
are states that before years ago, you never, Oklahoma, you know, Utah, uh, Vermont, uh, West Virginia, all, all these kinds of states where it turns the whole, everything again, turns everything on its head, like these states that never had a problem with this. Now, because this starts with the pills, and all those new those addicts today that are using today started with with the pills a few years ago. That that all of a sudden it's states that never had a problem with this, and this is also part of the problem as, as well because um, they be, um, not really knowing what to do about it was was part of the problem. A lot of states, a lot of regions, a lot of counties just didn't know what to do. A lot of the coroners didn't know what to look for for a lot of time. A long time, a lot of coroners just didn't even count certain deaths as opioid deaths because. They didn't have either the resources or the preparation and experience to, to, to actually do the autopsies and understand what they were seeing. This is also very common, you know. So it's, 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 this is a, a, an epidemic that has turned all these ideas uh, on their heads, you know. And um, that's one of the other things that fascinated me. This is unlike any other opioid epidemic, certainly since what, World War II you know, um, in, in this country. Mm. We're going to take another quick break to hear from another sponsor. When we, when we come back, I want you to tell us about some of maybe the most, I don't want to say most memorable, but some of the memorable maybe kids or families um, or something, who or what stands out to you the most from all your travels. So we'll be right back. Hey, this is Miriam from Apparently Speaking. Join the Mazda family like I did at Montrose Mazda Kent. You'll love the selection of new and used cars and lease options. We are on our third car from Kent Mazda. We keep going back because of the ease of purchase, and it has been by far the best deal we could find each time. Montrose Mazda Kent, they go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at MazdaKent.com. And we are back talking with Sam Quinones, author of Dreamland. And so tell us, you've traveled so much for this book, these books, I should say, and you've interviewed so many people, I can't even imagine, and all the, all the research that you've done and all the interviews. Who or what kind of stands out to you the most from all of that? Well, I would say the first couple I talked to, uh, Paul and Ellen Schoonover, yeah. uh, who lost a son, Matt, uh, at age 21 to an overdose of black tar heroin uh, in Columbus, in a suburb of Columbus. Uh, those folks, I think, right off the bat were, were very memorable. They, they, they've become friends with the family, in fact. Uh, uh, but they, because they were the first ones that I knew to speak out. Uh, remember, this is a time, as I said, when people were not speaking out. The obituaries were were fabrications. People were doing their very their utmost to right. To I still see that today. I mean, I to see more ones. people speaking out, but I still see that today. And you you do like you said, you read between the lines. You're like, okay, I know what happened. No, but what you are seeing though is obituaries telling the truth more often, yes. and, and, they and help. certainly certainly it's not as much as it should be, but it, it it's far more. I can tell you. Uh, than when I was writing the book. Yeah, basically, I see this in two stages. One is Dreamland or the opiate epidemic before the book when I was writing it was one way. And it was hidden. Nobody cared. Politicians didn't want to deal with it. The media didn't cover it. And then after the book, a whole different way of talking about it, a whole day of recognizing it, understanding the, uh, the importance of it coast to coast. It, it's still got some ways to go, there's no doubt. But it's much different than what I had, when I encountered um, I, I would say that there are um, other uh, 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 folks. I, I, when, when I was in the middle of all this, I, I got a call from a. Um, I, I got a, I got in contact with a group of um, 
Russian Pentecostal uh, Pentecostals in Portland. Uh, the Russian Pentecostal story was very interesting. It's a very uh, conservative, very traditional uh, a religious community that grew up in Russia during the communist time, survived uh, despite communist oppression in that country, uh, and survived it because they became very hard and devoted to their faith. And then a lot of them uh, migrated here after uh, the Berlin Wall fell, and they ended up in a few towns with Portland being one. And I just encountered them. And that was also a place where I found some amazing stories that, that these kids, um, the families had survived Joseph Stalin and the communist oppression. And they came here and their kids got hooked on opioids, you know. And, and part of the reason was that because in that community, the idea was never, ever talk about this stuff. It was very shameful to be addicted to drugs. And, and the kids kind of didn't feel Russian. They didn't feel American. They were kind of in this little limbo area. So I met a n- number of those those kids who who um, were really in bad shape, and they actually de- uh, 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 founded an entire church in, outside of Portland, uh, Russian Pentecostal church, almost devoted entirely to to um, o- opiate addicts and pill addicts. And um, these kinds of stories I began to run run into a lot. That that, that people um, uh, it was because of the silence. That, that things got bad and then get worse. And, and so it was, so that's why I think the schoonovers were to me uh, um, a model in, in the sense that they were the first to have the courage to come out and st- talk about it. Uh, even though their son had died in such a painful way and they were they're still living with the pain, they didn't want that to be the legacy. They wanted the legacy to be uh, kind of an awareness and they stood out uh, for that reason. I, I believe them to be kind of like the, a few of the, there's only a few folks in Ohio that I found like this, honestly, just a, I'll say four or five families who were willing to do this. And they were among that, that vanguard that has kind of led the state. That's great. I know they, I, I really commend them and other parents. Like you said, there has been a shift and I do see a lot of families coming out now saying, Hey, if there's any way we can, you know, help prevent this from happening to another family, we want to do it. And here's our story. And here's what it's we very, want to tell very you. very, cleansing. It's, it feels, mm-hmm. I, I think it's the only way. I, I, every family has their, their way of doing it, and I'm going to respect that, of course. Sure. But uh, I do believe this is one way of really um, not putting the death behind you, but finding some meaning in the death uh, of, of your, your beautiful child. And, and so that, I, I, I do believe that the coming out and being part of the conversation and telling the story over and over and not being ashamed, all of that is really part of it. Sam, before we go, with with all of this research, like I said, and all these interviews and all these families you've talked to and all that you've learned, what would be some, maybe your couple big pieces of advice that you would give to parents? Well, well, first of all, I would say that obviously you have to understand that this can easily happen to you. And you have to be aware of the the, the, the red flags uh, that it might be happening. Um, obviously, it means uh, lock up your opioid painkillers, not just put them in your purse or someplace, but really lock them up. Make sure that they're out of the way. Be careful of uh, when, when if your son or daughter starts spending a lot of time with new friends who don't seem all so you know wholesome and so on, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. That's a big uh, red flag, and so so on. But but I would say also. That that's on a kind of more micro level, and on a more macro level, I believe that one of the main things that got us into this was that we have spent a long time in this country destroying communities. As I said earlier, 
And, and I believe that nowadays, as a response to that, there's a, in county after county, I'm seeing this, there's this response at a very community level where people are coming together to fight this, to, to work together, people they don't know, they're work, you know, and it's also not just the same suspects, kind of to put it bluntly. It's not, not just cops and parole and, and jailers and judges. It's church groups. It's PTA. It's Kiwanis and, 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 uh, and, and Chamber of Commerce. It's Lily Coaches, et cetera. So you see all these new groups coming out to work on this together. And I would suggest to parents that they be part of that, 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 that we have destroyed community has left us very isolated in so many areas, wealthy and impoverished. Uh, doesn't matter really. Economics doesn't really matter. It's, it's the, the community fragmentation. And any opportunity you get as parents to be with others, to do work, be outside, get outside, get off the screens, get onto the, get back out to the street, get to know your neighbors, do those kinds of things, those kinds of activities with your, through your church or scout troop or your, uh, whatever organization you belong to locally, your book group or your library or whatever, uh, be part of that. Don't be uh, isolated. Don't remain indoors. Don't, don't, you know, we, we, this, this is epidemic is calling on us to recreate community. I believe that very strongly now that it, it's, it's, it's saying that we were better off when we all knew each other. We hung together. Um, we didn't all get along. That's not important. What is important is to, to kind of be aware of each other and be among each other. And we got away from that. And, and one uh, uh, result was this very catastrophic um, uh, opioid epidemic that we're living with, with and, and we'll be living with still for some time, but there is a positive side or there's a, there's a positive result that can uh, come from it if we, if we let it. And that is to, to rediscover the bonds of community that held us together and, and, and actively work every day or you know, all the time towards uh, uh, strengthening those bonds. I really like that. I really like that you mentioned so much about community, and I think you have a great point there, and we need to get back to that. And there are a lot of programs, a lot of groups, a lot of things going on that you can be involved in. And, you know, one thing with community is that you kind of look out for each other and look out for each other's kids and, you know, say something. If you if you suspect or hear or see something, if, if it's a, a neighbor's kid or someone in your community – you know, don't be afraid to talk to yeah. that parent and let them know. And if, and if you're wrong, that's okay. You're doing it because you're, you're concerned. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, 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 that's when I got I, in the midway through the book, I thought I was writing a book about drug trafficking and drug marketing. Uh, and the midway through the book, I realized that I was that was only part of it, that the bigger, larger story was uh, that I was writing a book about the effects of destruction of community and that repairing those, those bonds are, are essential to, to moving beyond this problem. Really important, really good stuff. And I hope that everyone reads the book, Dreamland, and then there's the young adult adaptation, Dreamland. Like I said, I'm going to have my daughter read it, and I think it would be something I'd love to see, you know, high schools kind of uh, pick up this book and, and have their students read that. Tell us, um, I want to thank you so much for being here. It's, it's so important and so timely. How can listeners find your book and find out more about you in general? Sure. Um, uh, Dreamland, both the original and the young adult version, are both available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. They're available on other uh, book websites and so on. Uh, very not not too hard to find, I have to say. Um, I can be reached at uh, my website, which is samquinones.com. That's S-A-M-Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S.com. I'm also on uh, uh, Twitter. 
at San Quinones 7, feel free to follow me, and at um, uh, San Quinones Journalist on, 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 on Facebook. So any way you'd like to follow me there, if, you, if, if there's anybody who is, uh, represents a school or, or a, a, a youth group or church group that might think of adopting this, let me know, and we'll be happy to get you a review copy of the book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode has been sponsored by Montrose Mazda Kent. They go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at mazdakent.com. And also by Old Trail School. In addition to a challenging academic experience, students aged 2 to grade 8 learn to embody the school's core values of respect, responsibility, goodness, and service as they mature into thoughtful, independent leaders. Thank you for listening to Apparently Speaking. Listen and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and iHeartRadio. Find the podcast and much more at northeastohioparent.com. Like Apparently Speaking on Facebook and email me at podcast at northeastohioparent.com. 